Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and this week we'll be talking with Dr. Alanud El Sharik, prominent Kuwaiti scholar and civil society activist and advocate on behalf of women in Kuwait and the Gulf. Alanud is director of the boutique Ibtikar strategic consulting firm, an associate fellow at the Chatham House Middle East North Africa program, and a non-resident fellow at the Arab Gulf States Institute here in Washington, D.C. Alanud and I will be talking about developments in Kuwait with the passing of Amir Sheikh Sabah and his brother, Sheikh Nawaf, being sworn in as Amir this week, issues in Kuwaiti politics and security in the Gulf, and Alanud's work to end honor killings and support women political candidates. My conversation with Dr. Alanud El Sharik after this short break. As for the GCC rift, you know, this is the issue that pained the late Amir the most. Uh, he was really good at mediating and healing uh, these intra-Gulf uh, states rifts, you know, and he had been involved in 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 some of the rifts that appeared between Oman and the UAE, even even before the GCC crisis, for example. Despite his, his age and his ill health, he worked tirelessly to keep the GCC union intact, despite pressure to, to pick a side. This is unlikely to change with the new Emir, whoever he may choose as Crown Prince. Uh, and, you know, I, I hear that maybe there's there's going to be movement towards uh, resolving the Gulf crisis soon, which makes me really hopeful. That was Dr. Alanud El Sharik, who will be joining us shortly. But first, I wanted to say a few words about Kuwait and its late Emir, Sheikh Sabah El Ahmed Al Sabah, who passed away this week, and why his loss to the region, and more widely, should be both a catalyst for reflection and a call to action to resolve the now three-year rift within the Gulf Cooperation Council. I should begin by saying that I've spent a lot of time in Kuwait in my career and have gotten to know many of the country's decision makers, thought and business leaders, scholars, and activists. Kuwait was Dubai before Dubai from the 1960s until Iraq's brutal invasion of Kuwait in 1990. It was Kuwait that was the dynamic hub in the region for universities, business, civil society, and the most progressive experiment in democracy in the Gulf region. That pulse remains in Kuwait, but it is sometimes overshadowed by the dynamism and ambition of the UAE. And of course, the primacy of Saudi Arabia is the key power player on the peninsula. Now about the Emir, there was a generosity of spirit about Sheikh Sabah. He was throughout the region a special and welcome guest and a valued friend. His regional counterparts knew there was no whiff of intrigue about the Emir in Kuwait. The Emir's agenda was the avoidance of conflict, strengthening a united Gulf and Arab alliance against shared threats and how to help the less fortunate in the region. Now, my assessment here is not the stuff of the expected bromides when a respected statesman passes away. Uh, I think it's something real 
rooted in the legacy of the emir who served for 40 years as foreign minister before becoming emir. It's also rooted in the moderate and progressive temperament for which Kuwaiti statecraft is known and in the country's sophisticated realism about dealing with the many threats in the region through collective diplomacy for Sheikh Sabah. The three-year rift in the GCC has been an unqualified disaster for regional security. And he, more than anyone working with the United States and others, tried to bring the parties together. I should also say in a region of often brutal fault lines and seemingly endless conflicts, Sheikh Sabah stood for building bridges, not burning them in the interests of his country. And let's start with Iraq, which under Saddam Hussein invaded and occupied Kuwait in 1990 and 91, despite Kuwait's role as a lifeline for the Iraqi dictator's war against Iran in the previous decade. Even before Saddam's time, it should be noted that Iraq had threatened its smaller neighbor over border issues. Now, the egregious aggression and human rights violations that occurred during the Iraqi occupation of Kuwait might well have fueled a hatred that would last generations, but it didn't. Once Saddam was deposed in 2003, Kuwait cautiously built ties to the new Iraqi government and even sponsored a donor conference in 2018. Both Kuwait and Iraq are now seeking a future that is linked to economic integration and good neighborliness, not battle lines in the sand. And then there is the Palestinian issue. Kuwait has historically been among the most generous of donors and backers of Yasser Arafat and the Palestine Liberation Organization. But Arafat took Saddam's side in the invasion of Kuwait and even cheered and partook in the looting of Kuwait as well. But here too, the bad blood of the past made way for the realism of the future. As with Iraq, Kuwait soon made amends with the Palestinians. Following the normalization agreements between Israel and the UAE and Bahrain over the past few weeks and months, Kuwait has even put out a ministerial statement that stands by the Palestinian people and remains committed to a two-state solution as described in the Arab Peace Initiative of 2002. U.S. President Donald Trump, who presented the emir with a prestigious and rare award last week in a statement of condolence this week, said Sheikh Sabah was a, quote, unwavering friend and partner and unparalleled diplomat, adding that, quote, I hope that the Gulf nations will come together to honor his legacy and work toward the cooperative future he envisioned. Ending the three-year rift between Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Egypt, and the UAE on the one hand and Qatar on the other would indeed be a good place to start to honor Sheikh Sabah's legacy. That reconciliation may be closer than it has been in the recent past. And if it is, it's in good part thanks to the mediation efforts of Sheikh Sabah. Meanwhile, expect the new emir, Sheikh Nawaf al-Ahmed al-Sabah, the late emir's brother, to follow the same path. The ruling Sabah family in Kuwait is known for its unified ranks. My expectation is that this transition will be a smooth one. Now, I can't think of anyone better to talk about trends in Kuwait and the region than my guest today, Dr. Alanud al-Sharik. In addition 
the Alanudes work with the Iptikar strategic consulting firm and her affiliations with Chatham House and the Arab Gulf States Institute. Alanudes previous posts include senior fellow for regional politics at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, where she and I work together, and senior political analyst at the Kuwait National Security Bureau and consultant researcher at the Supreme Council and Development and Planning in Kuwait. Our conversation about the Middle East with Kuwaiti scholar and activist, Dr. Alanu Dosharik begins now. Alanud, welcome to On the Middle East. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Alanud, I'd be interested in getting your reflections on the late Emir Sheikh Sabah al-Ahmed. He was a historic figure in Kuwait and then regional politics. How do you see his impact on Kuwait, on the region, and any personal observations you'd like to share? Um, well, this is a very sad time for us. The uh, outpouring of grief on an international level is gratifying, but on the local level, you know, it's more immediate and it's very genuine. Our relationship with rulers uh, in Kuwait is a personal one. They attend local weddings and funerals, and the late Emir was an especially accessible and easygoing figure. Uh, my, my social media timeline is flooded with people's pictures with him, prayers for his souls, and, and you know, it, it feels like people are lamenting a national father figure. This is a small country, and it's deeply connected through the recognition of the Emir's court, or Diwan as we call it. You know, if you, you celebrate an important achievement uh, or an international recognition through presenting it to him, or his official office at the Diwan will celebrate it for you in an official statement. What I mean is he's not a removed figure from our lives. And for the most part, we it's felt that he intervened for the benefit of Kuwaiti citizens. For, for example, his, his final act during the corona crisis was to issue directives insisting that the government fly back all our citizens stuck abroad, students, tourists, hospitalized patients. So his concern was the safety and comfort of his people, while others in the government worried about uh, the financial costs, the health risks, and you know I, the, the logistics of it. And it's this decisiveness of putting Kuwaitis collectively first in times of crisis that people will remember most. Uh, like when he rushed to the still insecure site of the terrorist bombing of a Shiite mosque in uh, 2015, he ignored his security details, please, not to put himself uh, at risk. A and he was quoted as saying, these are my children. So this refusal to allow sectarian violence to taint Kuwait's domestic scene, you know, it's, it's very symbolic of the type of leader he was. And it's this ability to be a symbol of unity and of de-escalation, um, which made him an extraordinary leader on a global scale. You know, um, there's this sense among many that he shielded Kuwait, a country whose vulnerability was made very clear during the Iraqi occupation of 1990, by being a, a, an inclusive diplomat and mediator. Through him and his foreign policy acumen, Kuwait was able to position itself 
far above its small size, not through you know, flashy gestures or aggressive intervention, but by being the voice of reason, of peace, uh, of pragmatic solutions and generous aid. In these uncertain times, it's a big blow to lose a leader who is able to balance tense relations within the Gulf, uh, our not always friendly neighbors, Iraq and Iran, and the often shifting agendas of Western powers. What can you tell us about the new Emir, Sheikh Nawaf, the late Emir's brother, and what should we expect from him? Um, our new Emir, uh, Sheikh Nawaf Al-Ahmed, uh, as you know, he's the, the late Emir's half-brother, and, and like him, he was born into a ruling household within the Al-Sabah family. His father and grandfather were rulers, and he, he lived it also through both his brothers who ruled before him. So the late Emir's reign was 14 years, and before that, Sheikh Jaber's reign uh, was almost 30 years. So he was never far from the seat of power. Um, and though his role as crown prince was largely ceremonial because it was separated from the office of prime minister in 2005, but he held many offices throughout his career that dealt immediately with uh, domestic concerns in Kuwait. So he was minister of interior, minister of defense, minister of social affairs and labor, and he was the deputy head of the Kuwaiti National Guard. Um, you know, when he was sworn in in Parliament uh, amid a standing ovation, uh, he, he responded using a nonverbal gesture of placing his hands uh, on his head in appreciation uh, of, you know, this, this welcoming. But it also shows his humble side, and, and he's, he's known for that. He's a conservative man, known for his simplicity, and... Unlike others in the family, he's not a controversial figure, and he hasn't been tainted by accusations of corruptions, where some of the other Al-Sabah members have faced. Let's talk a little about what's happening in Kuwait. Um, how is Kuwait managing COVID-19? There's also the decline in oil prices, Kuwait being a major oil-producing and exporting country. And now a political transition, which which you've talked about. Are are there other political is, uh, issues Kuwait is is facing that are especially concerning? How do you, how do you see things unfolding in the country? The response to the COVID nineteen crisis has been pretty stringent in Kuwait. Uh, we we spent the better part of the last uh, nine months either on complete or partial lockdown, and we only emerged from lockdown uh, a month ago. So during that time, some of the strengths and the, and the weaknesses in Kuwait, like in other countries, became very, very visible. So its uh, ability to, um, you know, uh, share the wealth with its citizens immediately through economic uh, packagings that lessened uh, the impact of debts and, and loss of uh, revenues, uh, was was one of the good things, uh, as was its ability to enforce this lockdown uh, peacefully uh, and ensure uh, the continued flow of goods uh, and uh, food 
especially that Kuwait is, is not an agricultural producer. Uh, but the, some of the negatives that came to light were uh, the living conditions of those who work in labor camps, um, you know, which in the beginning really accelerated the spread of them. And um, from a political perspective, the strained cycle of non-cooperation between the government and the parliament meant that uh, you know, Kuwait's ability to diversify its economy and uh, find a solution to its huge wage bill, especially as you so rightly pointed out, oil prices continue to take a hit and with COVID demand has fallen off. So uh, this um, non-cooperative relation uh, has made it very difficult to move towards uh, an economic solution that is realistic and sustainable. And, and that's one of the immediate crises that we're facing right now. Let's talk about the region for a minute. Uh, Sheikh Sabah was so active in regional diplomacy, especially in trying to heal the rift uh, among the GCC states that's been going on now for about three years. How do you see Kuwait's approach to security issues and regional diplomacy under the new emir? And uh, do you see any changes or shifts in the trends in Kuwait's approach to Iran, the Israel-Palestine issue, and the GCC rift, for example? Well, it's unlikely that there will be a big divergence from Kuwait's usually cautious role in terms of foreign policy and regional security. You know, um, Bushehr's nuclear reactor is closer to our capital than it is to Tehran. And our relations with the um, Islamic Republic, though strained at times, has never been explicitly hostile. And I don't see that changing uh, in the immediate future. Um, as for the Israel-Palestine issue, um, I don't see Kuwait as having an anti-Israel stance as much as it's a primary concern for the welfare of the Palestinian people uh, amid continued land annexation and building of settlements. Um, a, a peaceful two-state solution would be ideal and normalization is of course a clear step in that direction provided that there's a show of good faith from the Israeli side. But uh, as you well know, as a democracy, um, any move towards normalization has to pass through parliament and be backed by popular will inside the country. Uh, as for the GCC rift, you know, this is the issue that pained the late Amir the most. Uh, he was really good at mediating and healing uh, these intra-Gulf uh, states rifts, you know, and he had been involved in, in, in some of the rifts that appeared between Oman and the UAE, even, even before the GCC crisis, for example. Despite his, his age and his ill health, he worked tirelessly to keep the GCC union intact, uh, despite pressure to, to pick a side. This is unlikely to change with the new Emir, whoever he may choose as crown prince. Uh, and, you know, I, I hear that maybe there's, there's gonna be movement towards uh, resolving the Gulf crisis soon, which makes me really hopeful. Alanud, what are 
the regional trends you're following. And here I mean, I, I know your scholarship is also focused on youth, the empowerment of women in Kuwait and the region. What else are you looking at in terms of regional trends that may have an impact on Kuwait and the Gulf countries more broadly? Well, you know, I, I feel like sometimes the, the voices of nationalism and, and you know, this kind of uh, uh, othering rhetoric has been taking over internationally. Um, and the way that it is translated in our part of the world uh, has been with the, the resurgence of tribalism, the exclusion of non-kin uh, and some is kind of um, extreme religious rhetoric as well. Uh, and this has been a troubling trend uh, in Kuwait and, and the rest of the peninsula. So I've been tracking that and conducting research on it. And what has happened during COVID has sped up some of the so-called uh, demographic imbalance concerns. Um, you know, uh, in our part of the world, there are large expat communities that often outnumber nationals. And, and we're seeing policies enacted in Kuwait and elsewhere to limit and exclude uh, non-nationals. Um, so I feel like we need more moderate voices to push back against um, these silos of insular identities where the tribe is more important than the nation, for example, uh, and decouple local politics from the grip of politicized Islam uh, that can be sectarian and inflammatory. And we really saw some of that happen uh, during the Arab Spring. So in my opinion, the best way to do that is to support young, independent and female voices. Um, my consultancy at TICAD has been developing programs over the past four years to bridge the skills gap in promoting young and female political leaders, while also focusing on diversity and inclusion training for public and private sector needs in Kuwait and abroad. I, I think we all need to get better at communicating our common values rather than focusing and sensationalizing our differences. And by helping set up non-governmental organizations and campaigns that you know, try to tackle these issues in a frank and respectful manner, we can change the narrative or at least challenge it. How is that work going, promoting uh, female political candidates? Are, are you seeing progress taking place in Kuwait and in the region in that regard? And I'd also like you, uh, while we have you, to tell us about your project Abolish 153, which deals with uh, trying to end honor killings in the region. Um, thank you for that question, Andrew. Um, Abolish 153 started as a campaign, uh, as you just said, to get rid of honor killings where family members murder women mostly for defying or dishonoring them as a social and legal practice in Kuwait and across the Gulf. Um, it's, it's been a hard battle to educate, promote, and then lobby for change. Uh, but We've, we've had two major wins in the past five years. Um, we got a bill to abolish this heinous legislation uh, put through parliament in 2017. And um, that's because we got four independent male parliamentarians 
and the only woman in parliament to push for it, uh, though it has yet to be put on the priority list and voted on. Um, and in August of this year, Kuwait finally passed a domestic violence law, which will help us prosecute abusers and operate shelters for survivors. Uh, I have to say it's a testament to Kuwait that civil society organizations, even unregistered ones like Abolish 153, can be a political force uh, and actively lobby for change. Working on gender-based violence made me acutely aware of the lack of female leadership in policy-making circles uh, and that we need more equal representation. And so through my consultancy and partnering with US-based institutions, um, we had funding from the Middle East Partnership Initiative to focus on training women to run for a political office. And on uh, one of those training trips to the US, the participants of the Empowering Kuwaiti Women in Politics program uh, were particularly stuck, struck by um, institutions whose sole purpose was to promote women candidates. And so we just launched a similar platform called Mubawi's List in Kuwait to help ambitious women run for office. And we're hoping that we will be able to replicate this across the Gulf, you know, not just uh, to run for parliament, but also for municipal councils, uh, for co-op boards, and even student unions. Um, I'm excited about the, the prospects uh, and the appetite for empowerment that I see on the level of the state, not just in Kuwait, but also across the Gulf. You know, there are real measures um, you can see in the UAE and Bahrain and Saudi Arabia and, and, and other Gulf countries to be more gender and youth inclusive. Um, so in, in Kuwait, for example, we appointed eight women as judges for the first time in July of this year. I mean, it's late, but it's, a good thing that we're seeing these changes. Um, I think the determination of young people um, and especially women to be included in the decision-making process is just likely to increase with time. And so it's a good thing that we see our governments moving towards opening up safe spaces for dialogue for young people and for those who were traditionally excluded from power circles. Alanud, as always, I learned so much from you about Kuwait and the region. It was wonderful to get your take on events and especially to hear your work about, hear about the impactful work you were doing uh, on behalf of women. Thank you so much for joining us today on, on the Middle East. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. We will be back after this short break. If you're listening to this podcast, you obviously care about the Middle East, and if you do, you should probably be reading El Monitor. El Monitor is a global newsroom headquartered in Washington, D.C., with a network of over 160 contributors around the world. 
Elmonitor offers first-class recording and analysis from a range of perspectives and an approach that represents the highest journalistic standards, as well as an award-winning commitment to press freedom and independence. If you haven't done so already, visit us at elmonitor.com, check out our articles, and sign up for our free newsletters. There's a lot to choose from, including the Week in Review, an essay that offers unusual insights and forecasts into the region based upon Elmonitor's outstanding reporting. And if you haven't done so, please subscribe to our Elmonitor podcast on your favorite podcast platform, On Israel with Ben Caspit, and On the Middle East with me, Andrew Parasoliti. My takeaways today from my conversation with Alan Udosharik, one is the intense connection between Kuwait's leaders and its citizens and the powerful feelings of attachment they have for the late Emir, Sheikh Sabah, and also the political space that the Kuwaiti government allows for civil society, like those groups that Alanud is involved with that seek to do the important work of empowering women and youth ending and outlawing domestic violence and honor killings. This important work needs to be done. Alanud continues to be a leader uh, in those efforts. And it was really a treat to talk to her today and get her sense of what's happening in Kuwait and those trends in the region. Thank you all for listening to On the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti. We'll be back next week. And in the meantime, if you haven't done so, please sign up for this and our other Al Monitor podcast on Israel at your favorite podcast platform. Music